Great morning, Myers Park Baptist Church. Amen. I'm not going to be long, and not because it's Super Bowl Sunday, but because I'm just not a long-winded preacher, Mama Helen. Also, this is the only reference I'm going to make to the Super Bowl this morning. Amen. Football commercials, halftime show with Usher. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful. Amen. But bear with me the next few moments, church, under the topic, Worship in the Wild. Worship in the wild. Wild, it's an interesting word because when we use it, it typically has a negative connotation. When we talk about wild hair, it's unkempt or a really bad hair day. A wild child is a rebellious kid or teen. The Wild West is that lawless area in the pre-industrial American frontier. Hog wild or buck wild is completely out of control. Wild areas are untamed and overgrown and dangerous, etc. This negative connotation blended into our nation's original sin of racism. And the term wild became synonymous with black, indigenous, and people of color to be seen as barbaric, uncivilized, and lesser humans. So much so that one of the prevailing justifications for the violence of American chattel slavery and abuse of the American Indian residential schools was attempts to save black and indigenous people from their wild ways. Which conveniently but not accidentally, church, was synonymous with black indigenous people of color being under white people's rules, laws, and surveillance. It's truly insidious when you think about it, equating control with community and restrictions with refinement and harm with helping. But how else can we be better than them? With, with human concocted confines and codes, we can separate ourselves from the wild folk the lesser folk. With my culture and my comfort preferred, I can compare and draw a line in the sand of division from you and yours and always come out on top. These arbitrary rules are the reason that I can feel better in the comparison. See, Jesus understood this propensity we have as humans for comparison. And he uses it here in this parable. We have a Pharisee, someone very attuned with the rules, regulations, laws, ordinances, and purity rituals. Someone likely obsessed with dichotomy and distinction. One who in the text spends 50% of his prayer distinguishing himself from others he deemed less than. A trained, a learned man. He's not like those unruly folk. He's not like those uncivilized people. And he's not like that wild tax collector. Yet Jesus' parable does what it do. That's right, does what it do and flips our expectations. Whereas the seemingly good, controlled, proper, and prim Pharisee is expected to be justified, it is instead the tax collector who leaves justified. One seen as a lesser person in society, one seen as less cultured and less civilized, one perhaps seen as wild is the one who's justified. Why? I can't read the heart and mind of God or Jesus, but with my spiritual thinking cap on church, I feel God is telling us something about worship here in the text. I can surmise that Jesus' point was to think of this concept of wild a little differently. How so? Well, thank you for asking. Instead of this negative connotation, perhaps our connotation of wild should be more in line with freedom. 
free from control, free from constraint, and free from human-made conditions. I submit to you this morning that the Pharisees' worship was about being prim and proper and according to his comparison to others, perfect, whereas the tax collector's worship was a bit more wild, free, and sincere. See, while the Pharisee is controlled and classy, the tax collector is contrite and common. The Pharisee is restrained, but the tax collector is remorseful. The Pharisee is fettered to rules, but the tax collector is free to reverence. This Black History Month, I I can't help but see the similarities to my enslaved ancestors, forced to worship in white churches in the morning, segregated from white people, but still under their watchful eye, confined to an enclosure in the corner or sometimes in the balcony without permission to move an inch for fear that that would be seen as unruly by the enslavers. But history tells us that at night, somebody say at night, they would steal away and go down to the brush harbor or the hush harbors, a gathering place in the literal wild to worship freely. Risking dangers of wild animals or death by white patrollers, they snuck away to worship together in safety, free from the confines of enslavers, free to worship according to their native traditions, free to sing, free to dance, free to weep, free to clap, free to stomp, free to worship in the wild. Well, what does any of that have to do with us today? I'm so glad you asked. I just stopped by to tell you this morning that God isn't expecting professional and polished worship service. He's not. Or worship that restricts our natural selves and being, or worship that when compared to others looks better or costs more and etc. But God is expecting us to worship in the wild. I mean, God is expecting us to worship in freedom, freedom to be ordinary and amateurish, freedom to express however we express naturally, and free to be who we are without the confines of comparison to others. So this Black History Month, as we lean under this theme of total praise, I just want to ask a question. Are you ready to worship in the wild? Or or, are you too caught up in how you might compare? Are you ready to worship in the wild? Or are you a victim to the demand of perfectionism from white supremacy? Are you ready to worship in the wild? Or are you a victim to the demand of professionalism from our idea of classism? Are you free to worship and ready to worship in the wild or we can be free from comparison and judgment, free from confining societal expectations, and free to be the wonderfully and fearfully made person that God made you to be? Are you ready to worship in the wild? I believe Jesus' parable gives us three ways to prepare and I will take my seat. Number one, we have to get ready to let go of uncertainty. Or excuse me, let go of certainty. In the parable... Our Pharisee friend knows a lot. In fact, he knows God doesn't take kindly to greed, dishonesty, and unfaithful relationships. He knows fasting is important. He knows tithing is important. He's educated as a Pharisee. He knows all the rites and rituals of worship. He knows the ins and the outs of a perfect temple worship. But remember verse 9, church, Jesus is telling this parable to some who were certain within themselves and regarded others with contempt. Like them, this Pharisee has an ego problem. So listeners are hearing this parable. But they're lost at the ending. The the educated, self-assured, confident, better-than-them guy wasn't justified. And church, we aren't much better. 
How often do we get confident and comfortable in our own ego, self-assured that we know what's appropriate for worship? Self-assured and certain that we know what's theologically sound. Self-assured and certain that we know what's the correct order of worship. So self-assured and certain so much that we overanalyze every part of worship and never actually participated in worship. To worship in the wild, we have to let go of our ego and self-assurance and certainty because my God still works in mysterious ways. The Holy Spirit is still moving and the church is still evolving. Worships that still have something unexpected. We must remember that even the things, listen when, you, when I say, the things that we are certain of are still colored by our upbringing, our culture, and our social standing. There's still unwritten rules in our hearts and minds that we bring to this place week after week. And if we aren't willing to put those things down that we are so certain about and open our hearts and minds, we miss the very move of God. Enslaved black folks worshiping in the cover of night down in the brush arbor were never certain if they would be safe or caught. Never certain if they would be killed or punished or make it through the night. Never certain if they would get to see someone they knew or if it would be the last time they would see their family. But they worshiped anyhow, even in the uncertainty. In our parable, this, this Pharisee comes to worship with his checklist. The tax collector came with an open heart. The Pharisee came with a worship plan. The tax collector came with openness. The Pharisee came certain in his own goodness and righteousness, while the tax collector came certain in God's mercy. The Pharisee enters ready to judge, and the tax collector enters ready to be changed. How many times have we come to worship so certain of the checklist of what should happen and what God wants that we miss God entirely? We review service with a checklist ready to rattle off about miscues and long pauses and wrong phrases and unfavorable music, but I can't say what I've learned and how I was changed and what I was left with wondering. If we are ready to worship in the wild, we have to be ready to let go of certainty and to be open, unsure of what may happen next, but excited about the opportunity. Amen, somebody. To get ready to worship in the wild, number two, we must also be ready to worship with the least. Mm -hmm. Worship in the wild means the playing field is leveled and divisions are no more. <laughs> Again, our Pharisee friend emphasizes his distinction from the tax collector, just as white supremacy emphasizes distinction from blackness. To be clear, it is society that is deemed this label of least, where marginalized folks are treated as the least. But there is nothing, and I mean nothing, inherently wrong or least about being black, about being a woman, about being queer, about being trans, about being poor, about being disabled, about being neurodivergent, or about being non-Christian. Remember that this Pharisee in Jesus' parable spent 50% of his prayer comparing himself to others, more specifically placing himself above others, figuratively lifting up his own head, believing that the tax collector and others were beneath him, whereas the tax collector figuratively comes in with his head bowed, unable to see if anybody else is even in the temple with him. In my translation, he's minding his own business. 
It makes me wonder, church, how often we come into worship and look down on others. How many times we felt better about the way we worship only because we compare ourselves to others instead of examining our own hearts. How many times have we, like the Pharisee, found ways to bring society's hierarchies into worship? Most concerning is when we do it under the guise of inclusion, where inclusion means be here, but be like us. Be here, but be quiet. Be here, but don't lead. Be here, but don't be yourself. When God reminds us that there is neither Jew nor Greek, enslaved or free, male or female, because we are all one in Christ, not to erase our identities, but to affirm that all identities matter to my God. And if that should be true in any place, it ought to be where we worship God. Amen? Worship ought to be the great equalizer, not a replica of the society's caste system, but a replica of God's unconditional love for the least somebody. Problem is, we love to worship with the least, as long as they stay that way. As long as we can distinguish ourselves from them. If we want to worship in the wild and worship freely, we have to free ourselves from these societal hierarchies of education and wealth and occupation. We have to free ourselves from the limits of race, gender, and class. Hear me when I say, for years, the black church was one of the few places where adults who were called boy and girl in society were finally called ma'am and sir. Where the uneducated who were ridiculed in society were taught to read and write by studying the Bible in Sunday school. Where the poor who were dismissed and looked over in society were welcomed in by ushers opening doors and walking them to a seat like a VIP. No matter what society did, worship was the place of liberation. Great theologian James Cone wrote, Only the oppressed can receive liberating visions in wretched places. In other words, we have to be ready to worship with society's quote-unquote least because who is nearer to a liberatory God than the God of the oppressed? Who better to be exalted than those than this world has humbled? Who knows the freedom of worship in the wild better than those who have been through the wilderness? We have to be ready to worship with the least. Lastly, To get ready to worship in the wild, we must be ready to heal. There's a number of studies and scientific research being done on variety of somatic responses and mindful movement therapy and so much more about the benefits of being present and grounded in our bodies, feeling what we feel, moving as we need as a part of our healing. In short, some science is just catching up to the healing connection between the mind, the body, and the spirit. Meanwhile, that connection has been a part of spiritual practices for millennia. A longtime Catholic tradition with the confitior prayer is recitation and beating the chest. Ancient Jewish tradition similarly uses this movement. Even here in this parable, the tax collector beats his chest while in prayer. Do you follow me? 
There's something about moving the body that heals the mind and the spirit. There's something about putting rhythm inside your body that heals the mind and spirit. There's something about connecting the body, the mind, the spirit that transforms and heals our souls. Resma Menachem wrote in his book, My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. He says, the body, not the thinking brain, is where we experience most of our pain, pleasure, and joy, and where we process most of what happens to us. It is also where we do most of our healing, including our emotional and psychological healing, and is where we experience resilience and a sense of flow. Church, if we are to worship in the wild, we must be ready to heal. And to heal, we must be ready to work with our bodies, not in opposition or fear or restraint of our bodies. Now, it seems as though the Pharisee was only in what Resma would say, his thinking mind, while the tax collector was truly in his body. I don't know what healing comes through reciting a list or thinking about comparisons to others, but I certainly know about the healing that comes when a vulnerable tax collector humbly begs for mercy and repentance before the Lord. It's because I didn't grow up seeing this beating posture in the black church per se, but I did grow up seeing folks lift their hands and bow their heads. I grew up seeing folks with hands clasped and whispered meditations. I grew up seeing folks walk and bow before the altar, tears streaming down their face, swaying side to side, clapping with their hands, sobbing their feet, jumping, waving their hands. I grew up seeing people worship in the wild to get their healing in their bodies. They were feeling something, and too often we shrink, from, we shrink from our feelings and emotions, afraid to be vulnerable. But in worshiping in the wild means that we feel and not fear. It means we're free and we're not forced. It means we're responding, however, to the call. So while scientists are just getting hip to the benefits of screaming while frustrated, my ancestors have been shouting in church for generations. While some folks are just realizing that their body wants to move when they're anxious, my ancestors have been shouting their way through some things for years. While some folks are still studying the benefits of crying, my ancestors would hold public weeping ceremonies to hold solidarity with the community. So worship in the wild may look uncivilized to you. Worshiping without uncertainty may scare you off. Worshiping with society's least may turn you off. And worshiping to heal the body may not be your jam, but... If it was good enough for my ancestors, it's good enough for me. If I can dance like David dance, I'm going to dance. If I can weep like Mary Magdalene wept, I will weep. If I will shout like they did at the walls of Jericho, I will sing like Paul and Silas, even while in captivity. And I know that my wild worship is enough for God. So if you take nothing else from this message this morning, know that you can let go of the ego and the certainty of what worship is supposed to be. Know that you can look around you and worship with the people that the world has humbled, but God has exalted. And know that it's all right if you feel God shut up in your bones a little bit. Because that's where your healing comes from.
Are you ready to worship in the wild? Amen.